Praise the Lord for all who worship and all who sing. I want to turn now to a time of proclamation, a time of exposition, a time of application, a time where the sermon is preached. And this is not the end of worship. It really should be the pinnacle because we're looking to God's Word and we're hearing Him speak to us. Through the sermon, God speaks because we're looking at His words. These are not the words that I've come up with, a book that I wrote, but this is the Word of God. And it ought to speak to us. It ought to tell us how to live. It does tell us how to live. We have to listen to it, though. We have to listen, and we have to be doers of the Word. We're at the end of Ephesians 4. We've been looking at this letter to the Ephesians for a long time now, longer than I thought because we took that that three-month, uh, almost three-month break there, going live stream and looking at some other things, and then even when we came back. But we're at the end of chapter 4, and we want to consider the foundational principles of the Christian life. We started this paragraph, 25 through 32, last week. There's so much here that I didn't want to run through it in one sermon. So this is part two of that. Foundational principles of the Christian life. How, how should we live the Christian life? Well, Paul tells us, let me read here the paragraph to you. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. That's where we ended last week. We pick up this week, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Often as Christians, we think we're doing well because we're not doing the outward actions of sin. We're not committing murder. We're not committing adultery. We're not stealing. And we think that we're making good progress in our holiness, in our Christ-likeness. But as this passage reveals, there's things that go on with our words and our attitude, our words and our attitude that are sinful as well. Indeed, murder, adultery, those are sins. Those are vile sins. But so is malice in your heart. So are the list of things that Paul gives us here in 29 through 32. Words are sinful if they're the wrong words, if they're the wrong kind of words, if they're meant for an evil purpose. And so the Bible doesn't let us off the hook because we didn't break the Ten Commandments. No, no. Jesus says it's in the heart that we look. It's with our words that we'll be judged. And that's what the Apostle Paul now turns to At the end of this chapter, in chapter 4, he's been telling us about how the church is built up. How we build up one another. And how God is building up the church. And how we're united in that process. 
We're united as one church and we ought to be working. We ought to be striving. We ought to be using our spiritual gifts to build up each other. I told you last week that in this paragraph, there's five foundational principles to guide us in the Christian life. From the very moment that you're saved, now you often have to join a church to exercise these things, but from the moment you're saved, these principles guide us in the Christian life. And particularly in this chapter, he's talking about within the church context, within the body of Christ. How do we interact with other Christians? How do we go about living the Christian life that edifies others and builds up the church and keeps us united? Last week, we looked at the first three of those five. Number one was be truthful with your speech. That was in verse 25. Paul tells us not to lie to one another, but speak truth. Put away lying of all kinds. And this includes exaggeration, cheating, lying, lying to God, slander, flattering, every type of untruth and falsehood. Instead of that, we ought to speak truth to one another. Lies harm, lies hurt. Truth builds up. And we're all one body. We're all members of the same body. There's no use in lying to one another. Number two was be righteous with your anger. Be righteous. There is a righteous type of anger. It's when you're angry over sin. Your own sin, other people's sin, the world's sin. That is a righteous, godly type of anger. But it must be limited. It must be limited, Paul says. Do not sin with it. Do not let it fester. And don't give the devil a place, an opportunity in your heart to take that anger and twist it. And number three, be honest with your work. Christians should not steal. They should not steal things. They should not steal time from their employers. That's an evil practice to steal. They should not steal from the government and cheating on their taxes. Instead of that, Paul says, work hard, toil, labor hard so that you not only supply your own needs and your family's needs, but you have enough to give to others. The context, again, being your church. You have enough to give, to give to others who are in need. Who has a need? That's what you want to be ready for. So we continue today with points four and five. And as I said, they have to do with our words and our attitude. Number four is be gracious with your words. Be gracious with your words. Paul's going to open this up here in 29 and 30. Believers have to put off foul language. They have to. That's his point. That's his command. Put off the foul language and put on kind words, which build up. It's a real problem in the Christian life. Foul language, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And we often just pick it up and think it's no big deal. Well, here's a great text to, to show us it is a big deal. It's listed in the same paragraph as lying, stealing, and sinful anger. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word, not a single one, proceed from your mouth. None of these unwholesome words. Now, different translations uh, translate differently here for unwholesome. They might say corrupt. The word underlying the translation, the Greek word here, is to describe that which is foul or rotten. Other places in the New Testament, it's used to describe rotten fish, putrid meat, Something that just literally stinks. Don't use stinking words. These are what your 
often using to tear down others. That's the problem here is that it tears down others. Either in just bad language that they hear, that tears down the whole body, or language directed towards somebody. Foul language. Foul language. A very broad category here. It's not just curse words. Of course, those are foul. Sometimes Christians think curse words and cuss words are fine. You may have even heard of some famous cussing pastors that put out videos the last few years on the internet showing how it's really no problem. Well, Paul says it is. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Certainly, cuss words are included in that. Certainly. Why would we want to act like the world and speak just like them? Often that's one of the first things that disappears out of your vocabulary and out of your life when you are saved. Well, there are other words that are foul too, though. Other words that are foul. Anything sinful that you say about someone else. Anything that comes out of your mouth that harms another person. Any word that tears your fellow Christian down, whether it be your friend or maybe someone in your own home, your spouse. Certainly your your spouse is part of the body if they're a believer. This is often where we see this sin committed the most. If it tears down, it's rotten. It's a rotten word. It's a foul word. Biting sarcasm. Complaints. Just complaining can be unwholesome. Sneers. Cynicism. Gossip. Gossip certainly is. And the church is often a breeding ground for gossip. Gossip is when you take something and just spread it along. It's usually negative about someone. Almost every time it is. Because if it was positive, you would love to say it. But gossip is whispered. Gossip is behind closed doors. Gossip spreads. Well, gossip is unwholesome words. Making fun of someone, especially when they're not around. Talking behind their back. Exaggerating about someone's faults or sins. Mumbling, grumbling about a person. Any words that you would use that abuse others. You're basically abusing them with your words. You're tearing them down. And Paul says these things must be put off. This is what the world does. This is what pagans do. Pagans use foul language and tear others down. But not Christians. Not Christians. As I said earlier, often we think we're doing well by not committing outward acts that people can look at us and see us doing. We're not punching people in the face as we walk into church. So we're holy today. But are we building up with our words instead of tearing down? We shouldn't be tearing down. We shouldn't be using Foul words, rotten words. This type of sin is often overlooked. It's often defended by Christians. It's not really a sin, they might say, in their own minds or tell others. But Jesus taught differently. He said, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Matthew fifteen eleven. He also said in Matthew twelve thirty six, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, Every careless word. This has the idea of not being thought through. Just speaking to somebody and maybe in your anger. They shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Meaning that Christians speak wholesome words. It will show. Those who are justified will show wholesome words. But unbelievers. And that's who he's speaking to there. The Pharisees. They speak unwholesome words. They speak rotten words. And they'll be judged just based on that. Probably the most famous passage on our tongue is in James chapter 3. 
Go to James chapter 3, and we see here how James develops this analogy. He speaks of the tongue as a, as a fire. Even animals can be tamed, but the tongue can't be tamed. He's speaking to the church. Let's pick up in James chapter 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue starts a small fire and it just sets the whole forest aflame. Destroys relationships. Destroys homes, businesses, churches. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. That's strong language. All the sins out there in James, and you're saying the tongue is a world of iniquity? The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. It can just turn our whole life on fire. Not in a positive sense, in a destructive sense. And is set on fire by hell. James is serious. This is a brother of Jesus. He, he listened to Jesus. He picked up that teaching and then proclaims it in this letter. For every species of beasts and birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed, has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. We, we come to church. We praise God through our singing, through our scripture reading, through our prayers. But we also, he says, curse men. With it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. This is not the Christian way. It's not the way Jesus taught. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Of course not. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Of course not. Nor can salt water produce fresh. They're both, both James and Paul are working from the position that we already are saved in Christ. We already are sanctified in Christ. Now live like it. If you've been changed, if you have a new heart, you have to work to sin. It's indwelling sin. It's still there. But we've got to work at it. Our nature in Christ is to be holy. It's to be Christ-like. And so Paul's saying we have to stop doing these things. Stop using unwholesome words. Well, we're back to Ephesians now. He, he gives us the positive. Put off rotten words, but only such a word is as good for edification. That's what we should speak. Good words. Words for edification. Words for building up others. Especially those within the church. Throw off the bad. Put it away. Get rid of it. And put on something good. Words that build up. Words that are edifying. Edification has been a major theme in chapter 4. and In 4.12, he said that gifted pastors and teachers are given to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. How do all of you build up one another? Well, one of the main ways is through your words. Through your words. We often think of physical acts of kindness, and that's good. Certainly, we should do those things. But how easy is it just to build up with our words? That often means more to some people than giving them money giving them things, helping them. Kind words, 
Building up. Building up. Paul goes on to say that later in 4.16, that building up one another is for the ultimate purpose of church stability. Our words help build up, and the church is more stable because of that. The church, each believer even, isn't cast about by every wind of doctrine because they've been built up by encouraging words. Maybe those are words from the Bible. Maybe there are words that you just sit down and prayed with somebody. Maybe it's just a kind word that you said to somebody to show your love for them. But that stabilizes Christians. That's part of the truth and love that stabilizes the church. So that way a whole segment of the church isn't tossed around, following every false doctrine that comes along. This church cares for me. They love me. I want to go back there and hear truth. Because every time I go, I don't have to hear gossip like I do in many places. At work, people have to hear gossip and lies, slander. Shouldn't be that way at church. Shouldn't. So many churches are unstable right now because they're speaking unwholesome words. Their leaders are speaking unwholesome words. And their members are speaking rotten words. So ask yourself, am I building up the body? Are you using your words for good? He goes on to give us more. According to the need of the moment. This tells us when. When we ought to help people with good words. When the need arises. Every week, every week people come in here. They're beaten down by the world. They're beaten down by their own flesh tempting them. They're beaten down by their sins, by other people. They're beaten down by the devil roaming around tempting them every day, all the time. They need to hear a word that builds up. Not just from the pulpit, but from you. They need to hear a word that builds up from the congregation, from your fellowship time. Maybe God is even disciplining them, like we've been reading in the bruised reed. Maybe they're a bruised reed. They were first tempted, then they sinned. Now they're being bruised by God in a sense, disciplining them. And they just need to be encouraged. They need to know this is for their good. Encourage them. Help them. Give them a word that builds up. So that, the ultimate purpose, it will give grace to those who hear. Paul describes even further how we can minister to one another. Our words have to be gracious. Not just any word that we want to say, but they need to be gracious words. Grace here is not unmerited favor. It's beneficial, compassionate words that build up. It's analogous to the grace of God. The grace of God is unmerited favor when He saves us. But gracious words are are words that build up. Words that are beneficial. Words that are compassionate. And they fill a need that somebody has. You don't even know often what that need is. But just speak gracious words and you'll fill that need. Jesus spoke with gracious words. The exact same Greek word is used in Luke 4.22. And all were speaking well of Jesus and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. He was so gracious to everyone. He was building up everyone with the truth of God's word as he spoke, as he taught, as he preached, as he had individual conversations with his disciples. And the gracious words were coming out so easily, it was like they were just falling from his lips. Every word that he spoke was gracious. We've got to be like that. Instructive words encouraging words, uplifting words. Not some uh, silly pie-in-the-sky quote that's being passed around in every seeker-friendly church. 
Not some health, wealth, and prosperity quote from a book. That's not an encouraging word. It's words that line up with Scripture. Encouraging words. Uplifting words. Have others' welfare in mind when you speak to them. Focus on the problem if they present a problem instead of attacking them as a person. See, rotten words tear down people because you have an issue with that person, you tear them down. Gracious words fill the need. They build up. So instead of attacking someone back when they sin against you, use gracious words to reconcile. Use gracious words to bring about healing in that relationship. That's one main reason that we should speak good words, gracious words, because it builds up. But Paul gives another reason in verse 30. This is a serious reason. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now there's an and that should start that sentence. If you have the NASB, it's not there. Every other translation has an and there because it's there in the original Greek, the word chi. And is a conjunction. It connects us to the previous verse. 30 is connected to 29. He's saying that grieving the Holy Spirit happens when we use unwholesome words. He's making a very strong argument here. These foul, rotten words against believers grieve the Holy Spirit that lives in us. That's one thing to harm another person in the church. But when you grieve the Holy Spirit of God, that's a serious sin. It's bad enough that when we speak rotten words, we're hindering other believers at edification. But when we grieve the Holy Spirit, think of what that means. And the word grieve here isn't isn't mistranslated. In fact, it could be even stronger. The word means to cause severe mental or emotional distress, to vex, to irritate, to offend, to insult. You cause the Holy Spirit severe emotional distress. Whenever you speak rudely, use bad language, or any of those things in the context of the church, or even in the context that someone else could hear you as a Christian speak like that. The Holy Spirit's not some impersonal wind. He's not the force that is in all things. The Spirit is in believers. He's in each believer. Each true believer has the Spirit residing in them. So when they sin in this way, It grieves him. He is in every believer. Promise of the new covenant. And Paul is alluding really to an Old Testament verse. If we go back and look at it, Isaiah 63, I think it'll bring even more godly fear into our lives about speaking in a harmful way to others. Isaiah 63 and verse 9. The exact same language is used here. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. That's God. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. So Isaiah points back to when they were saved out of Egypt. When they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. He's talking about the exodus. God heard their cries. He heard their affliction. So he physically saved the nation of Israel. He brought them out. He redeemed them. But look at verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought 
against them. Even though God had saved them, even though he had given them a a law to live by so that they could live a righteous and holy life after he had saved them, they rebelled against him and that grieved the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? He fought against them. What does this mean for us? Well, Paul's drawing an analogy. He's alluding to this passage and the analogy is, yes, God physically saved them and they rebelled, they disobeyed. They used unwholesome words, we could say, and he fought against them. As Christians, Christ has saved us out of the slavery to sin. He's redeemed us. He's paid for us. And the Holy Spirit resides in us. And if we grieve the Holy Spirit, then God's going to fight against us. God's going to fight against us. He's going to discipline us, in other words. The holiness of God will not tolerate such a sin. The holiness of God, the Holy Spirit in you, won't just tolerate you speaking ill of other Christians. The Spirit is building up the church. So if you're tearing it down with your words, you're opposing God. You're opposing the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is all about building up bad, rotten words, tear down. We are opposing God when we do that. And He will discipline us. Let it not be said that he is fighting against us. Often when our kids say a bad word, we tell them that's not good, that's not godly, that's not biblical. Maybe we should remind them and remind ourselves that God's going to discipline us for that. Well, Paul says the Holy Spirit is the one that you were sealed for the day of redemption in, by whom you were sealed. Pointing us back to the end of chapter 1. 1, 13 and 14, you might recall that I talked about the sealing of the Spirit there. How no true believer will lose their salvation. He's been sealed. She's been sealed by the Spirit. And the Spirit Himself is the seal. In other words, you can't lose your salvation because you can't kick the Holy Spirit out of your life. He's in you if you're truly regenerate. But we can grieve Him. We can grieve Him. And we've got to watch for that. He sealed us. He's there. He's there for our good. He's there to preserve us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Don't grieve the Spirit. When you sin against your spouse, your children, your parents, your fellow church members with unwholesome words, you're grieving the Spirit. Children, you've got to use the right language with your siblings, with your parents. Parents, you've got to use the right language with your children. You need to build up the children. Don't tear them down. Don't use unwholesome words. And when we come to this church, or when we're interacting outside of Sunday morning, and all the different ways that we might interact with believers, build up. Build up. There are people who come into churches, and their whole goal is to disrupt. And they try to tear down, and they're grieving the Spirit. And often we see them disciplined by God and disciplined by the church. Well, that's number four. Let us be gracious. But number five, be merciful with your church. Be merciful with your church. We've looked at speaking truth. We've looked at uh, anger being righteous, honesty in your work, gracious with your words, and now be merciful with your church. These are the last two verses of Ephesians 4. Whether you're married, whether you're interacting with friends, 
whether it's with your family, whether with your church, you, you've got to cultivate compassion towards them, mercy, loving kindness, tenderheartedness, and that should lead to forgiveness. You know, this whole paragraph is often preached in marriage conferences as how to resolve conflict in the marriage. Because it's these principles that teach us how to resolve that conflict. What do you do when another believer sins against you? Yes, there is church discipline, but first you try to resolve it yourself. And these are the principles that you use. Be merciful. Be ready to forgive. First, he gives us the negative, the thing we should put off. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, be put off from you, along with all malice. So we have to unpack these words. What do they mean? What do they mean back then? How do we apply them in our context today? Well, bitterness is resentment. It's bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. Something happens in your life, you're treated unfairly, and you grow bitter. You let your heart turn sour. You grow bitter towards another person. This is one of those words used in Psalm 3 that speak of the total depravity of mankind. When Paul's quoting from Psalm 10, he says, those whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. How do unbelievers live? They live a life where they're always cursing and bitter. And as Christians, we've got to put that away. Someone sins against you, then try to reconcile. But if they don't want to reconcile, then you have to let that go. You have to give it to God. You have to pray that God would make you merciful. Be merciful with your church even. Then he says, wrath. Wrath. These are one of the deeds of the flesh. Wrath is in Galatians 5.20. Wrath is an outburst of anger. A fit of rage. It's the Greek word thumos. It's different from the anger that we saw back previously in this paragraph. It's different from the next word. Wrath is something that is extreme. Extreme, boiling rage and anger. It should never be used of a Christian. Christians are told to be angry, yes, but not wrathful. There is a difference. Anytime this word is used in the Bible, it's used to describe worldly pagans or God himself. It's not necessarily sinful if it's God doing it. Also, according to Revelation 12, 12, the devil has a kind of wrath, the same word, that seeks to kill God's elect people. God has wrath in Revelation as he destroys the world in judgment. We see this word used over and over as the end of the world approaches and God is delivering his wrath upon the world. God can have full anger and wrath and have no sin. To the extremity, God can be wrathful and have no sin. We can't. If we're wrathful for one second, we're already in sin. Wrath deals out judgment. It's what Satan wants to do. It's what unbelievers want to do. They want to deal out judgment to everyone that is against them. God does it in perfect, loving wrath. He's holy, but we're not. We don't have 100% pure motives. And so Paul says, don't have wrath. Don't explode. Don't blow your top, people might say. This is what the Jews had in response to hearing the gospel from Jesus. 
They were wrathful against him. They hated what he said. And they blew up. You can't blow up as a Christian. If you do, you need to repent of it. You need to work hard on it. You need to get biblical counseling for it. It's not a godly anger. It can never be a righteous anger. Repent of it. So he says wrath and anger. Now this is the anger that we already saw. Orge in Greek. That kind of anger can be righteous, as I said last week, or it can be a man-made anger. It can be a personal injury to yourself, which causes you strong displeasure. It's focused on you. It's personal. It's not about God. It's not about the Word. It's not about anybody really sinning against God. It's about you being offended. It's not passionate and temporary like wrath, but it's something that is settled and abiding. It's a state of anger, he's saying here. Don't be in a state of anger. Remember he said, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down. You see, righteous anger can turn into sinful anger, can turn into evil anger by just letting it fester. Starts out, they sinned against me, but then now I'm bitter, now I'm wrathful, now I'm angry. And it sits in my heart, and it stays there, and it continues. You notice a progression already. Bitterness turns to rage, which then turns to lasting anger. Paul's condemning that. That's often the type of anger we have, by the way. When we are angry, even as Christians, it's often this kind. We can try to make the case that it's godly, and occasionally it probably is. But often when someone sins against us, it's an evil, sinful anger. It arises from our own selfish desires. Someone has done something to me I didn't like. Someone has interrupted my time, interrupted my work, said something against me. Paul says, put that away. Put away clamor, he says. Clamor here is a a loud cry, shouting. So you get bitter, you boil up, you have an abiding anger, and now you start shouting, crying out. This is like a loud, drunken shouting match is the idea here. People who get excited, they raise their voices in a quarrel, they start shouting, even screaming at each other. It's what you would expect from unbelievers. You may have grown up in a household like that. It shouldn't be used to describe believers. Paul says, put that away. Put away slander. Put away slander. I preached the whole message really on gossip and slander. You can look at that on our website. But this is speech that denigrates or defames your brother or sister. It's literally the word blasphemy in Greek. You can blaspheme God by slandering him, or you can blaspheme your brother or sister in Christ. It's a serious sin. A a serious sin. You're defaming your brother or sister. You're saying something that's reviling, denigrating, disrespectful. And you know it's not true. You know it's not true. But you're bringing them down. You're tearing them up. You're letting other people believe that they are what you're saying about them. And now he finishes. So he's given us five here. Five things that you must put off. And he finishes saying, with all malice. Malice is really the word evil here. It's a mean spirit or vicious attitude or disposition. So we looked at words. Now we're really talking about an attitude here. Are you going to be merciful or are you going to be malicious? And the way Paul writes it here, all of these five that he's just listed have a malicious 
root to them. Paul's saying, put away all malicious bitterness, malicious wrath, malicious anger, malicious shouting, malicious slander. It's malice, it's evil in your heart that brings all these about. It's that indwelling sin that's still there. And Satan is tempting us. He's, he's waiting. That's why Paul warned, don't give the devil a place. Don't give him an opportunity. He's waiting for you to be offended at something so that he can take that maliciousness in your heart and turn it into some of these actions of sin because you follow what Satan says. You follow his temptations. But when the conflict comes with another believer, which one do you go to most often here? Look at this list and and pick one to work on. So really research how you can attack that sin in your life, how you can put it to death. We have some good resources. We have a biblical counselor as well now in the room. Come to me. I would love to point a direction for you that would help you in these things. Do you get bitter? Do you tend to blow up and be wrathful? Do you tend to have a sinful anger that keeps going on? You want to pay back your spouse, pay back somebody in the church for what they did? Are you a shouter? Do you like to yell? Or do you slander, speak lies and exaggerations about others? That's what we're to put off. But the Bible never leaves us just with what we're to put off. Now you're back to neutral. What's going to happen at neutral? You're going to go back into the sin. You've got to put something on in its place. You've got to put on Christ-likeness. And here's what that looks like. Be kind to one another. Do you see there in verse 32? Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So in the place of the list of five that's supported by malice, he gives us three admonitions here on how to be merciful. Be kind. Be loving. That's what it means to be kind. Loving, benevolent. It's a simple command, isn't it? But it's not easy. Especially if you've been offended or sinned against. Be kind. It's an attribute of God. It's part of God's goodness. Ephesians 2, 7 uses this word. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has been kind to you. He's shown his kindness if you're a believer. Be kind to others. See, the problem with the modern church is they start with kindness and they make of it whatever they want. Many churches do. Just be nice, they say. That's kind of the idea. If you're nice, That's Christianity. Paul says something different here. He says it starts with God. It starts with Christ saving you. And because of that, now be kind. And be kind especially to others in your church is the idea here. He uses the same word in Romans 2.4. Do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. This is a good thing to be kind. It can lead people to repentance. God is working through you to show kindness. It doesn't come naturally, though. For most of us, it's it's not natural, and it's not something that's easy for us. It's not an ability that can be self-generated. Just tell yourself a hundred times a day to be kind. It doesn't work like that. But it is a fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can do it. You can be kind. Yes, you have to focus. Yes, you've got to have spiritual disciplines in your life, so you're praying and you're reading the Word, and kindness just starts to come out. You should see that more and more as you're a believer. 
He also says, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. This is used to describe God. It's interesting here, I always laugh at this Greek word because it's the idea of feeling in your guts. And the Greek mind, you didn't feel things in your heart. You felt things down here. You know that feeling you get when you watch a good movie? And you get that feeling down in your gut? Well, that's how they thought. And so when you show love, you're supposed to show it from your gut, from your intestines. It doesn't really work when I tell my wife I love her from my intestines. That's how they thought. And towards other believers, the idea with your innermost being, you're to show love. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, Philippians 2.4, but also for the interest of others. Are you like this towards others in your church? Merciful? Tenderhearted? With your, with your innermost being? Having compassion? Lastly, forgive one another. So he said, be kind, be tenderhearted, and forgive one another. Why? And what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is simply the idea that you let that sin go. You don't hold it against them. When God saved you, he did not keep your sins on an account to use against you later. It's the same thing when we forgive others. They've sinned against us. and They should come to us and ask for repentance. And we shouldn't withhold that. We shouldn't withhold forgiveness from them. We should forgive them. We should let it go. We should erase it from their account, not bring it up again, and seek to reconcile through forgiveness. Because God in Christ has also forgiven you. God owed us nothing. God owed us nothing. As unbelievers, we rejected Him. We loved our sin. But He saved us. If you're in Christ today, He saved you. Why? Because of his kindness. Because of his love. Because he has his own purposes, but it was through Christ on the cross. Through the cross on Calvary that brought us to God. Christ died for us. God has forgiven us if we have faith in Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. How does that happen? Through forgiveness. That's the transaction that occurred on the cross. God forgave the sins of all those who would believe in Christ. And Paul's pointing now, he's saying, be sanctified, be holy, be like Christ, and he's pointing back to the cross. There's nothing wrong with that. Now there's some Theologies today that say we should only look to the cross and not strive, not work at being holy. Paul's not saying that. He spent all of chapter 4 saying, strive for holiness. I implore you. I command you. Put off. Put on. But he's saying that our sanctification is grounded and rooted in the work of Christ. What he's done for us on the cross. How can we go holding other people's sin against them and not forgiving them when Christ has forgiven us? when the Father has forgiven us, when the Spirit indwells us. It's on the cross that Christ obtained our justification. And because He died in our place, because He satisfied the wrath of God, we can now forgive others. If God forgave us, can't we forgive believers in the body? Can't you forgive your spouse, your child who sins against you? Unforgiveness is one of the surest ways to identify an unbeliever or a false believer. If somebody says they're a believer, but they will not forgive, That's a bad sign. It indicates they're truly an unbeliever. 
Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 6.14. He said that forgiveness is a test of genuine salvation. If you've been saved by grace, you've got to show it through forgiveness. You must. We will forgive others. We should forgive others. Instead of all these malicious, evil words, things that we have in our heart with our attitude, we've got to show forgiveness. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on this actual passage said, a man who knows forgiveness has got a broken heart. He realizes he's a vile wretch to whom God owes nothing. But for him, God sent his only son, and the son has borne all his sin and iniquity. And salvation has been given as a free gift entirely and altogether and only in Christ. Forgive others as you have been forgiven. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive others. And Jesus says, if you don't, then you won't be forgiven your sins. It's that serious. So let's be gracious. Let's be kind. Let's be merciful. Be truthful. Be righteous. It doesn't matter what kind of sin has been committed. There can be forgiveness. There can be reconciliation. It doesn't matter how far you've gone as a Christian, running away from God's will, running into your sin. There is forgiveness with God and forgiveness with other believers. Let's put those things on. Let's be a church that practices these five every Sunday, every Wednesday night, every time you have somebody over for dinner, every home group, every opportunity we get. Let's strive for these things in the marriage, in the home. Let's be truly people that can serve Christ and love Christ and be like Christ. Amen? Lord, we do pray that you would uh, do these things, that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would give us strength and energy and zeal, a zeal to be like Christ. Let's not show up on Sunday and then go about our whole week sinning. Let's live like we should live, holy and righteous and blameless. If Christ has died for us, then we ought to live for him. We can never pay him back for all of that. We can't even come close. But we can live for the praise of his name. We can live in such a way that others, that others, Father, want to know about Christ. They're ready to listen to the gospel that we proclaim because we live in such a way that's different from the world. Help us to do that here at Grace Bible Church. Let us be a people for your own possession. We pray this in Christ's name to glorify him. Amen.